So who's excited about a message from Leviticus? Right? Right? Got, was that a hand back there? There got one. Anybody else? No? Okay. Well, I, I, had, I had Sean read that because that's what we think of Leviticus. Like, what in the world? Why are, I mean, what are, what are these things all about? You know, like, why are all these laws here? How do we look at that? Well, just a little bit about Leviticus. Um, it does apply to our lives, and we'll see that because what we're going to see, um, the passage that we're going to look at is that it really, you see a lot of this quoted in the New Testament time and time and time again. And what we're seeing here is just kind of its original context, and it's revealing the character of God. And so the whole book of Leviticus is about, really, holiness. If you, if you saw in uh, verse 2, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So based upon who God is, he wants his people to be holy. That was true for the Israelites. That was true for the people before then, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And it's true for us now. It's true for his church. That we are to be holy because he is holy. Now holiness just means set apart for special use. Um, that we're to be different, we're to be separate. When we talk about be living a holy life, it means you're living a life that's different than the world lives it, for, for the, the lives that people that are in the world live their lives. Because we're doing things God's way, the way that God wants us to do them. Throughout this passage, too, we'll see that he often says that in this, it says, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or, He'll say, I am the Lord your God, emphasizing again and again who God is and who and his character, that he's a covenant-keeping God, and he has this character, and we are to reflect that as well. One person said it this way, he says, because God is holy and is their God, the Israelites' God, the people are to be holy in outward ceremonial behavior as an external expression, so showing it outwardly, of the greater necessity of heart holiness. So throughout this, let's never forget that it's not just external things that God wants us here. Now, it's great that we're all here gathered together, worshiping God. But the outward ceremony is only a part of it. It's, a, it's the expression of what's happening inside. So what we're going to see today in Leviticus 19, we're going to see five practical ways that we can fill, fulfill God's command to love him or to, to love our neighbors, because that's what it's going to talk about. We're going to talk about love and, and specifically uh, the commands to love others. But let me say this before we get started. As I was talking just here about it's a, it, you know, these, these laws that we see are an outward expression, the ability to love people the way that God wants us to love them is always contingent upon us first knowing God, that we know him, and that we love him. And then because of that, because of what he has done for us, because he's redeemed us and saved us, he's, as we were praying earlier, taking the scales off our eyes so we can see who he is and our need for him, because of that, we are then free to love others. Usually we get it backwards, right? Usually we do things in order to get things. But that's not how God's work. That's not how God works. That's not how his grace works. He gave us salvation and out of the gratitude of what he's done for us, we love him and we love others because he's changed our hearts. 
Now, let me go ahead and read. We're going to look at verses uh, 9 through 18 of Leviticus chapter 9. So let me just go ahead and read this for you. And, you'll, and really, the focus upon this, you'll see, is really learning uh, just practical ways for the Israelites to love their neighbors. And we're going to take those ideas and, and apply them to us. Verse 9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. We'll see that phrase again and again. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with him all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the Lord. And really, if you look at that last verse, it's really the culmination of these verses, isn't it? It's love your neighbor as yourself. The way that you would take care of yourself, that's the way that you would treat someone. Now, one of the interesting things I mentioned before is that a lot of this is found in the New Testament. Let me give you an example, or a few examples, um, especially the book of James has a lot of quotations, very similar quotations to this. So we see in in Leviticus, you shall not swear. In James 5.12, it says, do not swear. Simple enough. Uh, Verse 13 says, the wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night. In uh, James 5.4, behold the wages of the laborers which you kept back by fraud. Again, addressing that issue of not paying people promptly. Verse 15, you shall not be partial. In James 2, it talks about, it says, My brothers, show no partiality. Uh, You shall not go around as a slanderer. Do not speak evil against one another. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Do not grumble against one another. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, we see that numerous times in the New Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this, this command, this ethic... Uh, to love neighbors is really at the heart of how the Israelites were to treat one another. And it is really at the heart of how we are to treat not only one another, but those that God puts in our paths, whoever we may meet. Because it is, the, it is really God's heart pouring out through us. So let's look at the first point. The first point is love sacrificially. We're looking at five ways to really practically love our neighbors. And the first one is to love sacrificially. We see that in verses 9 and 10. 
It says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings. You know, it goes on. So who here is a farmer? Are there any farmers here? We are in Indiana, right? So I'm, I'm a Chicago guy. So no farmers, though? Okay, so I can talk. Because otherwise I'd have the farmer come up. Okay. So if you're a farmer and you work all summer long to plant and to weed and whatever the farming, farming stuff farmers do, um, you want to bring in as much of that harvest as you can, right? But what God is calling them here to do is to leave some of that alone. So they would hire laborers to go through and, and to pick whatever, it's grape or whatever it is, and they would miss some stuff, okay? So if they did that in a vineyard, what God's saying is, don't go around and send people through a second time to make sure that you get every single grape. Leave it there. So as a business person, you're thinking, okay, Moses, I know you're saying God is telling you this, but I feel like I'm leaving money out there in the field because I could sell those grapes and, you know, buy a new goat or whatever it might be. Or, he's also saying if you're harvesting another field, leave the edges. Don't, you know, don't get everything in the edges. Leave those there too. Okay? Again, leaving money out in the field that you could use or to feed your family. So this, uh, this concept is called gleaning. And it's a, con- it's a concept of where you have people giving sacrificially and you're leaving stuff there for people that don't have enough to come and work and to feed themselves. Probably the most common and most well-known example of this is Ruth, right? Ruth came from a foreign land, came into a field, and she started gleaning. That's how Ruth um, was, getting, was getting fed at the time. And so the, the concept here is of this idea of gleaning and leaving things for the needy is, can be maybe summed up in this way. If we're going to love sacrificially, we need to give those in need and those people that are vulnerable opportunities to provide for themselves. So we're going to help people, but we're going to do so in a way that helps them. But for us to do that, what needs to happen in our hearts is I think we need to be both generous and we need to be content. If we're going to love sacrificially, we need to be generous and we need to be content. And generosity requires us, you know, you know think about the farmer leaving those grapes on the vine or leaving some crops in the field that you're not going to harvest and thinking, you know what? Last year, things were a little bit tight with my budget. I could really use some more income or I could really use some more wheat or whatever that is to feed my family. That generosity requires that person to say, God, I'm going to rely upon you. I'm going to obey you, but I'm going to rely upon you because I'm not sure if all the numbers are going to add up but I know what you're asking me to do. So that's a generosity, and that's the type of generosity we need to bring at times. You know, there's, there's a need in the church or some other need or, or whatever it might be. I'm not sure everything's going to add up, but I know that you're calling me to be generous. It also requires us to be content as well. Content with the things that we have. You know, a lot of times we start thinking, okay, if I do this and I save this much, then I'll have this much for that. Maybe that's not God's plan for us. Maybe we can be content with the things that God has given us. So if we're going to love sacrificially, one of the first thing, one of the ways to do that is to be generously content. Generously content with the things that has, God has given us. Our second 
Our second point we see in verses, 19, uh, verses 11 and 12, and it says, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Well, we all know it's, you shouldn't steal, right? Okay, end of sermon, we're done? No. So what's happening here is, um, is really dealing with business dealings in, in uh, the Old Testament. So Leviticus, it seems like it was written, like God was giving Moses this message while Israel is moving around and doing things. And so what's happening is, is God is giving them laws that really apply to them. As issues come up, they're getting laws and learning to apply those. And so one of the things that are happening is business dealings, Okay. And so here you have people that, some people were possibly stealing from others, some were dealing falsely with them, whatever that may be, ripping people off in some way, um, lying to one another, okay? So these things were happening, and so they're saying, you know what, these are not things that we should be doing to one another in our society. This is not reflecting God's holiness. God is a truthful God. So we're going to love truthfully. That's the point here. We need to value truth and honesty more than personal gain. And what happens here in verse 12 is it says, You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. What he's talking about there is if I had, say, R- Rolando and I were in a, in a conflict with business, all right, because I know, um, because I know he'd try and cheat me, right? No, just kidding. <laughs> no, but what, what's happening there is if we had a conflict and we worked in the same town or we lived in the same village and I was selling him something, he was selling me something, there was an argument, where would we go? Is there a court system set up? No. We'd go to the gate where the elders of the city were sitting, right? And so basically it would be him talking about what happened and I talk, me talking about what happened and then we would, they would decide on it. And so what would happen is some people would say, I swear by God's holy name that he said this and this and this. And so it's telling them to, to not do that, to not lie, and to bring, drag God down into those lies. And so they're asking for truthfulness here, asking for us to deal with one another truthfully. Using God's name in vain, um, in, in that sense, is not cursing as we typically think of it, right? We typically think if you use God's name in vain, that's using it as a curse. But here it's saying... No, God, by, God, by God's name, I'm telling you this is the truth. So it's kind of using it for personal gain. Okay? It's kind of a, I'm a very holy person, and this is what's happening. So it's a warning against that. So, so you know, I, I think we all know that we shouldn't be stealing, right? Uh, we shouldn't deal falsely with people, or maybe cheat is a better word there. Um, but, you know, but think about this. Are there some places in our lives where we are maybe in some way dealing falsely with people? Where we are presenting uh, something as true that isn't quite true just for our own personal advantage? So if we're going to love people, if we're going to truly love people, the little white lie that we tell that we think is going to maybe be easier with my spouse because I shouldn't say it, God's calling us to, to be truthful about those things, to own up to those things, and to trust that he will work through those. Verse 13, then, is our next point we see, uh, verse 19, uh, 13 and 14. And so we've seen that we are to love people sacrificially. We are to love people truthfully. 
And now we're going to see that we are to love people compassionately in verses 13 and 14. We're to love people compassionately. We're to use our power and our position wherever God has put us to help people that are vulnerable. And when we talk about compassion, we're talking about something that emanates, something that comes out of the heart. Um, it's thinking about people next to you. It's not looking at someone as, oh, they're, they're way over there, I'll throw them a couple bucks. But it's really getting there and being with those people as they're struggling and suffering through things. You're next to them, you're your neighbor, you're, you're, you're their friend. You're seeing them, you're hearing them. You know, Mark Twain said that the difference between the right word and almost the right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug, right? And so when we think about compassion, let's make sure that we have that right. Compassion is love, but it's a love that is next to someone, that is with someone. It's not pity. It's not obligation. It's getting down there in with someone and sharing whatever struggles that they're going through. Well, here's the situation in that day. It says, You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere, revere your God. I am the Lord. In the previous verses, in verses 11 and 12, we had the idea of uh, two equals dealing with business, that there was a conflict. Uh, I own a business, you own a business, We're, we have some sort of conflict. What's happening in this verse, though, is it's a person that might have a higher social status in some way, whatever that might be, more money, um, more influence, whatever it might be, dealing with someone that has less influence, less power, isn't heard, doesn't know people, isn't connected. And so it's talking about, like, how do you help those people? Now, in this, this reminds us also of Jesus told a parable about the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. And, and the concept is still the same of an oppressive, crooked person taking advantage of people. If, if you have day laborers coming in and you're holding that wage for them and you don't give them their wage that night, they might, they might not have any, any food that night or the next morning. And so the idea there is to give them that. It's interesting that um, when I travel with Kids Live, we, we work in 14, 14 different countries around the world, and um, we see this happening. I was in Guatemala about a month ago where we work. Um, we work in a, in a village in a jungle. We have a school there, um, a, a Christian school that the kids from the village go to. The idea is behind that, number one, they're going to hear the gospel. We work closely with a church in that community. Um, but also, if they're going to break the cycle of poverty, they need to get an education so they can have job prospects. Um, and then some of those kids go on, most of those kids finish high school, a lot of them then go on to college, so it's really trying to transform long-term those communities. That's basically what Kids Live does everywhere. But one of the things that they do in there, in that part of Guatemala, is they pick coffee beans. They pick coffee beans. And so it's seasonal work. Maybe you work four or five months out of a year. The whole family will go work, and they'll pick as many beans as they can. And when there's a dispute, do you know what those employers do? Um, I'm not going to pay you. Why? Because there's a thousand other people that are willing to come and work for that. So this sort of thing still happens, and I'm sure there's examples of this happening in the United States. But that idea of oppressing the weaker person, Oppressing the weaker person. 
the thing which keeps us from doing that, I think, is what it says at the end is revering God. When we have that reverence for God, when we have that love for God, it'll keep us from doing that. But look at verse 14. It says, You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. Now, when I first was reading this verse, I said, why is that verse there? Seriously, think about this. Like, was this really happening? Think about it. Was this happening there in those times that there's a deaf man walking by and so someone's cursing him behind his back? I guess it was. He wouldn't write it if it wasn't. Or place a stumbling block before the blind person? I don't know what that is. I mean, whether it was just cruelty or was it, you know, I don't want the beggars coming into my area, so maybe I'll have a gate that'll kind of shoo them over there. I guess that makes kind of sense. But blindness was very common in those days, as well as other uh, physical disabilities. You know, we, we think about, we even, uh, as we prayed this morning, about the scales falling off. That's the idea of blindness. That it, there's the idea of not perceiving things. And so blindness was a very, you were a very vulnerable person in those days because you couldn't farm, you couldn't do much. You were dependent upon others. And so what we're seeing here is just an example of how those that are very weak are being treated. And that's the principle that we're trying to take. It's not about the, the specific laborers here or a person being deaf or a person being blind. It's about us as Christians, how do we treat people that are vulnerable? In those days, if you were a widow, you were vulnerable because you didn't have someone working in the fields. If you were an orphan, you were vulnerable because you didn't have a father providing for you because that's how it was. It was family units of farmers mostly. If you were a foreigner, if you had come from one of the lands around Israel and came into the country, you were vulnerable. You didn't have that system. You didn't fit in. So all these verses, it's, it's not so much of what they were specifically. It's the idea that here we have vulnerable people. And how are you going to treat those vulnerable people? How are you going to use your position and where God has put you to help them? Or are you going to use your position to hurt them for your own advantage? And that's the question being put here. Are you exploiting people in society? Or are you loving them and serving them? So the question for us today on, the, on this is, how do you use your strengths? You know, I mean, you know, is it the, I feel sorry for you, but basically, you know, out of my way, go have a nice day? Do you sterilize what is happening to people around the world because it really doesn't concern you? You're, you're fine. You're living your life. You're not reaching out to your neighbors or to others. So do you view your, the people around you as neighbors or do you view them as more like hired hands? How do you view your coworkers? How do you view your employees? How do you view your employers? Does a change in position, in your position, mean that you're going to change how you treat people? That's a really good sign of where your heart is at. So if we're going to love compassionately, we need to use the things that God has given us, our power and position, to help those people that are vulnerable. Meet people at their needs. Now, in verses 15 and 16, we see the fourth point, and it is to love justly. Stand and fight for justice and righteousness. Love people in a just way. It says, You shall do no injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. 
Now, Deuteronomy uh, uh, 2719 suggests that usually it's the alien and the fatherless and the widow that don't get justice. We see that time and time again, especially with the pro- in the prophets of Scripture, talking about you did not care for those people that were vulnerable. In the Bible, justice is not equal outcomes, but here it's talking about justice as being fairness. And in the sense that there's no regard for status, that you treat people the same. In the Bible, we have justice, we have compassion, and we have love. All those things that we're supposed to do, but they're different things. They're different things. And I know that justice is a really hot topic in today. We talk about that with social justice and and things like that. But when we're talking about justice in the Bible, it is really focusing, really focused on the idea of regardless of what someone looks like or where they come from or what they have, you need to treat them fairly. Whether they have a lot and you treat them unfairly or they have a little and you treat them unfairly. And we see examples of that, right? We see examples of, well, I have power, I'm in Politics, I have political power, I'm going to make you do the things that I want you to do. But then we see the other thing happen too, right? There's a corporation and maybe somebody's suing a giant corporation. And you know it's, a, it's a, a sham of a case, right? A sham of a lawsuit. I, oh, I hurt my neck or something like that. And the, and the jury comes back and rewards a person millions of dollars even though it's a scam because, well, that wealthy corporation, that wealthier person, they can afford it, but you're not treating that person fairly. And so that's the emphasis here, is that are we treating people fairly regardless of where they are? So biblical justice should be blind to those things. You know, whether a person is homeless or or a person has a great job, whether a person has made many, many mistakes and is suffering those because because of those mistakes and decisions they've made, or someone's lived and done the right things, we're still to treat them with love and compassion, regardless of, of that past. This passage might have application also to our laws and judicial system. You know, like, are there, are there things in our system that are unjust and unfair? I think as Christians, we should stand up to those things and make our voices heard about those things. But I think specifically, this passage is more focused on our individual action. What are you doing to treat people fairly and to make sure that people are treated fairly? So we need to engage with people and help those that are not being treated fairly and make sure that we're not just standing idly by. Now the final point that we see is to love peacefully. So let me recap the five points that we've seen. We've seen to love sacrificially, to love truthfully, to love compassionately, to love justly, and now love peacefully. And these are ways that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. If we're going to love peacefully, we need to seek to understand and reconcile and, and look for reconciliation in all our relationships. Let me read verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Another thing, one of the things um, 
I was going to share this earlier, but one of the reasons I joined Kids Alive, I was working with another ministry in, in Chicago, but I went on a missions trip with them about 14 months ago with my son. We went to the Dominican Republic at one of their sites. Um, and I was just really impressed with what they did. So um, I would have said that regardless of whether they hired me afterwards. But we went down there, and uh, we just really loved what they did. And what we saw was um, the, the town that we were in was a very poor area in the north part of the Dominican Republic, somewhat near Haiti. And they had a lot of Haitians there. Uh, Haitians would come over because as poor as the Dominican Republic is, Haiti is worse, just as far as job opportunities and quality of life and, and everything. And so uh, the school that we were at was in a, in a small town, not off, a little bit off the coast, but you would never know because no one had cars or anything to get to the coast. And the, um, the Haitians were brought in to work in the sugarcane fields. All day, I mean, there's fields everywhere, like all over as you're driving back to this, just fields and fields. Unfortunately, about 10 years ago, the sugarcane factory closed down. So those fields are empty now. There's no sugarcane in them. There's just like super skinny cattle and donkeys scattered around. And there's no work for this, this entire village of several thousand people. And so there's, a, there's kind of like a Haitian village where most of the people of Haitian descent are. And then there's a, some Dominican villages around there. But they're all pretty much in the same boat. Well, one of the things that, I, that, we, that we saw through Kids Alive is that there, there, there is a lot of racial animosity between those groups. Um, there, there, there's, there just is. The Dominicans look down on the Haitians, the Haitians keep them themselves, and there's, there's issues there. But one of the things they said that it took time, but they began to see a difference is, is as those groups came together in the school, and as the gospel started taking root in their lives, you saw that racial hatred and animosity start to break down. And you saw some long-term changes in the lives of those kids, whether they are Dominican or Haitian that they were getting the education. Some of those kids now have gone to college and come back and are teaching at that location, you know, where um, they grew up in a place where they have, where there's, you know, there's several different fathers of the children in the home, and there's no father that's living there currently. That was most of their lives, but now you're seeing a transformation there um, because, uh, because the gospel reconciles those relationships. So, as we're looking at this in verse 17, it says, You shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. It's not just our actions. God has always been concerned about our hearts. It's not just the external things that we do. If we're, if we're here in church, that's great. But God really cares about where your heart is at. You know, you know and, and that's one of the, the things that people say about the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all ritual. And then Jesus made it internal. That's not true. Here we see that it is internal, that it has always been internal, that God has always cared about the heart because he's a holy God and a loving God, and we need to reflect that. But we also see, so we see that God cared about the outward as well as the inward actions. Talking about fellow country, your brothers and sisters, you know, are you, are you harboring any hatred towards people? or feelings towards them. God wants us to, to move past that. But notice this in verse 17, though. That idea of not hating your countrymen doesn't mean that you don't say something to somebody when they're wrong or to warn them, okay? So you can say, as an example, you know, I can say, all right, I don't hate my neighbor, okay? I got a real pain. I don't, I don't. But say I have a real pain of a neighbor next to me. All right, God, I'm not going to hate my neighbor, 
okay? I'm not going to hate my neighbor, okay? So that means there's no open hostility between us. But what if I notice something like happening in his backyard or something like that? Does that, does that not hating him mean, well, I, you know, we don't talk and I don't hate him. I'll just let those things go. No, that's what the second half of that verse says here. It's not just the absence of hatred. It's that you can talk to those people too. And here the example is reproving them. Um, the idea of you may surely reprove your neighbor but shall not incur sin because of, because of him. The idea is that just because you don't hate someone doesn't mean that you don't correct them. Just because you love someone doesn't mean that you don't correct them as well. And so, so what is being asked for here is not an absence of hate, an absence of contact, but it's, it's actually an engagement where you're reconciled with someone and you're building that relationship. Better is open rebuke than hidden love is the idea. That's one of the, what one of the Proverbs say. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And the idea there at the end is but shall not incur sin because of him. There's two ways to understand that. When you love somebody, you don't hate them, when you love someone and you're willing to step out and to say, you know what, I see this happening in your life and that might be an issue for you. What's happening there is that you are protecting that person. So love in this sense is looking out for someone. It's not just, okay, I'm not going to do anything bad to that person. It's looking out for that person. You might want to consider what you're doing here because here's what could happen. And so that's what this verse is saying, is that you need to look, love is actually looking out for people, warning them about things. And so that guilt is not on you because you could have warned them, but you chose not to. So that's one aspect of loving peacefully. When, when you love someone and, and you reconcile a relationship and there's peace there, you can help one another. You can warn them. In verse 18, we see the idea of not taking vengeance because of something my neighbor did. Not bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You know, so not, holding, uh, family, not having family squabbles and family feuds. But then it ends with this, and we, we've seen this verse throughout the New Testament, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, and we talked about this in Sunday school, we all know what the lawyer asked Jesus, right? Who is my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? Okay, that's the law of Jesus. I know I should love God with all my heart. I know I should love my neighbor as myself, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Look with me at verse 34 in Leviticus 19. Now, it's interesting that the lawyer knew this. The lawyer knew that he should love his neighbor. That, that's one of the commands. But look at verse 34. It's not that far away. It's in the same chapter. They didn't have chapters, but it's there. An expert on the law didn't know that the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That dude in the New Testament should have known who his neighbors were. He just didn't want to know them because his heart wasn't right with God. Right? Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the person that God has put there that you meet. It's everybody. Love the people that God has put in your path, that God has brought in your life. Now, just thinking about how to apply this, this, uh, this passage, um, let me just give you a couple, a couple points to think about. Um, first of all, this. If we're going to love our neighbor just thinking about practically, how do we love people the way that God wants to love them? 
the first place to start is with our own hearts. Do you know Christ and is your heart where it should be? The gospel is the beginning of everything. If you're not looking at that, you're becoming a legalist. You're becoming someone that just follows rules and rules and rules and doesn't know God. But if your heart's right, you'll see these things happening in you because God and his spirit is working within your life. So all this starts with the right heart. It starts with a compassionate heart. Then if you're going to focus on loving, I would recommend thinking about it in these terms. Number one, love the church. Okay? If you're going to love your neighbor, you might as well start with the church. Because we're called to love the brothers and sisters in Christ and to know them and to encourage them and to support them. And the world will know who we are by the way that we love one another. Jesus said that, didn't he? So I would start with that. If you're going to love, not only check your heart, but then start by loving the church. And then I would think about this. Who do you know or who in your life is vulnerable? Who are the people where you can reach out to and help them? Because God has always had a special concern and love for those that are struggling, for the, for the, for the person that's an alien to the country or to the, to the widow or to the orphan or whoever that may be. It may not be those categories, but I challenge you to think about who in your life are those people that are vulnerable, that God is putting in your life, that you can love and show his love to them. So be Christ-like to them. The last thing I would say is this, is love whenever you have an opportunity. Right? We're out in the world every day. Right? We're coming across people every day that need God's love. And God's given us sometimes very practical things to do. Sometimes it's more spiritual. But are we really looking for those opportunities to do that? You know, or are you busy? I got 18 things to do. I have a meeting. And you're just focused on that. It's really easy to do that. I was, I was talking to my son um, a while ago. and he's, uh, So he's gone to a Christian grade school, right? And a Christian high school now. And we go to church, and most of our friends are Christian, you know, except for neighbors and stuff like that. And he's, he keeps telling me, um, <laughs> so his kids from his school, a lot of them go to Taylor University over in Indiana, or is that East Indiana, and a lot of them go to Wheaton College and something like that. And he's like, Dad, the only thing I'm doing in college is not going to Taylor or Wheaton. That's all I want. I want out of this bubble, right? But sometimes we put ourselves in those bubbles, right? that we don't have that opportunity to show people because we're so focused on getting our stuff done, we don't see that God has some interruptions in our lives that he wants to use to, for us to love others and to show his love towards others. So consider that. Consider what are some opportunities that God is giving you. And then finally, we talked about this, but love because of the gospel. Love because of the gospel. Loving your neighbor boils down to five simple words. And we've talked about those. But they have millions and millions of meanings and apply in many different places. Those words are the sacrifice, truth, compassion, justice, and peace. And in some ways, those reflect the gospel. Listen to this. Jesus was sent by the Father to become, what? A sacrifice for us. That was love. Jesus was the truth and spoke the truth about our guilt before God and our need for forgiveness. That was love. Jesus felt compassion for us in our lost and rebellious state and gave himself up for us on the cross. That was love. At the cross, God's justice was satisfied. 
Jesus took our punishment and paid it in full so we did not have to face God's wrath, which we all deserve. That was love. And finally, at the tomb where Jesus rose again, we see that his sacrifice has given us peace. We were enemies of God. We were in rebellion towards God. But because of what Jesus did, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I encourage you and exhort you to think about how you can love others as God has loved you. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your love. Uh, We would be nowhere without it. We would be nowhere without your grace and mercy, your compassion in in our lives. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would just help us to reflect your love to our neighbor. May we not be too busy to think about what you want us to do or the interruptions that we may have in our lives or the places that you have put us to serve you and to be an instrument of your love to others, both physically and spiritually. We ask that you bless our weeks too, Lord, as we serve you. May we uh, all gather again here next week encouraged and strengthened in our faith because of your grace in our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.